Good morning again. My name is Derek, and I'm the pastor. If I haven't met you, I would love to. We are in week two now of a series on the book of Daniel. Uh, If you are unfamiliar with the Bible, you're probably familiar with the stories in Daniel. This is where we get the lion's den and the fiery furnace and some really just amazing stories. And we're just now kind of getting into this. We'll be in Daniel throughout the rest of this fall. Uh, It's a series I'm really excited about. We've, we heard last week, we looked at the first kind of half of chapter one last week and really read how God had actually taken his people into exile because of their disobedience, because of the fact that they continually turned away from the Lord, they had been delivered into the hands of their enemies. And we saw how Daniel and his friends had specifically been brought in and taken into captivity, but also kind of taught to be Babylonians. The idea was, you know, if we can, if we can uh, uh, brainwash these kids and assimilate them, then we'll, we'll actually turn enemies into friends, right? Well, how do we live in a time that is still in exile? It's one of the things that we talked about last week is that we still live in Babylon in many ways. So what does it mean to live that life? What does it mean to integrate with the world around us? That's really going to be what we talk about today. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel's in the Old Testament right after Ezekiel. Like I said last week, it is no shame to use the table of contents in the front of your Bible. All right, let me read for us Daniel 1, starting in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for not simply the example of Daniel, though he is a fabulous example for us. But we are faith, we're thankful for the proclamation of your faithfulness. I pray you would open your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I'm going to start us this morning with a, a psychology lesson, okay? The word for the day, and I feel like it should be like on the screen in front of me, the word for the day is differentiation, differentiation. What differentiation means is actually the ability to be both separate, distinct, and connected at the same time. So actually, a well-differentiated person can be one who has his own sense of self, knows who he or she is, knows his identity, and it's separate from others, but still remains connected to and dependent even in many ways on the people around him. So a poorly differentiated person can fall into one category or the other. You know, you can have somebody who is always going along with what everybody else does, who is simply assimilating, whose uh, who's idol of acceptance drives everything they do, or you can have kind of the flip side of that, right, which is the person who says, no, no, I will be against everything and you've got to conform to everything that I do, or you can have somebody that is just completely detached. So differentiation is neither this kind of total assimilation or total detachment. And that is true for interpersonal relationships, but it's also true of the way that we interact with the culture around us. What does it mean for Christians to interact with the culture around us, with the place that God has put us? Are we to completely assimilate? Are we to totally detach? If you've been through our, our DNA class, maybe you know that one of our core values here is that we move toward people even if it means we're moving away from their worldview. We move toward people even as we oftentimes move away from their worldview. And we see that's actually what's happening here in Daniel. Daniel's kind of the poster child for differentiation for us here. Because he is moving toward the people around him at the same time he is moving away from their worldview. You could say he's loving the people, but he's not eating the food. He loves the place, but he doesn't eat the food. So what does that mean for us? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's just kind of dive into this story and see what we can learn from it. Well, when we start off, we hear that Daniel has decided not to eat the king's food, but I think there's something very helpful to us for how he goes about doing that. See, Daniel knows that he is called to love the place that he, where he is. You heard Kathy read Jeremiah 29 earlier. That's a letter from the prophet Jeremiah to these exiles in Babylon, the folks that are there with Daniel, probably a couple of years later than the passage that we're reading right now. And Jeremiah's message is, hey, love the people where God has put you. Pray for this place. Be for it. Dig in, build houses, have families, plant gardens, and eat the, the fruit of those gardens. Love the people around you. And we're going to actually see that played out in all of Daniel. Daniel's attitude toward his place is going to be one of love and service. You see little glimpses of it here in chapter 1 where uh, Daniel does not go on a hunger strike. He does not start a protest. He actually asks permission to not eat the king's food. And what we hear is that he has favor then with the people around him, with the guards who are put in charge of assimilating him completely into Babylonian culture. They like him. They want to be around him. And then we see at the end of that chapter that Daniel actually is there for the long haul. We read that he's there until the first year of King Cyrus. Cyrus is actually the Persian king that releases God's people back to go back to the, uh, to the promised land, back to Jerusalem and rebuild it. 
That means he works through two Babylonian kings and even two Persian kings after that. Daniel is there for the long haul, and he is there to love the people around him. That, of course, is nothing new in Scripture. When you open up the words of Scripture, you see that God created Adam and Eve to reflect his glory in the world to be reflections of his image and then to fill the world with that image so that all of the world might be filled with his glory. We find that same sort of theme repeated in Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham and he says, it's through you and your family and the nation that's going to come out of your family that I'm actually going to work blessing to the whole world. I'm going to use you to bless all of the world. That is the same mission that we, the church, take up And it is the same mission that even we, an individual local church, take up here in the city of New Braunfels. I think sometimes we can maybe wonder like, okay, great, that's a wonderful kind of big global paradigm you've given us. And it was great for Daniel, but what can one little local church do? That question was actually asked by, um, by a guy at the University of Pennsylvania, a researcher, a man who actually would say that he is uh, completely secular and non-religious, he was actually trying to figure out what's the value of a local church. If you just took the local churches away, would it do anything to the cities where they are? And so he studied this one church in Philadelphia, uh, First Baptist Church of Philadelphia, and he found actually that the economic benefit to the city of Philadelphia was $6 million a year from that one church. He calculated that by looking at things like the crime rate surrounding the church, the the lowered rate of, of drug and alcohol abuse in the church members and in those surrounding areas. Uh, the, the kind of employment benefits that would come not just with being a part of the church, but actually the outreach efforts that the church would do. The the emotional benefits that came and actually created economic benefit in the city. And his final calculation was $6 million a year. It was exponentially more than the budget of the church or the giving of the church was the economic impact to the city they were in. And, of course, he wasn't even calculating emotional or spiritual impact, right? He wasn't calculating at all what it meant for those people to come and be in contact with God's word and with God's table and with God's people, and the ripple effects that that would have on those families and their neighbors and their friends and how that would move out throughout the whole culture. I grew up as a child in the 80s, and and in the 80s there was a trend amongst particularly large churches that that they would say, you know, whatever is kind of out there in the culture, we want to bring in here. So I remember visiting some churches when I was a kid, and there were not only uh, multiple basketball courts and workout facilities, but movie theaters, cafes, bowling alleys. The idea, again, being whatever's out there in the culture, let's bring it into the church. So it started to kind of pique my interest, and I wondered, oh, like, that's, that's interesting. I wonder how many churches kind of had bowling alleys, because I just thought that was funny. Like, bowling, that's funny. Uh, and it turns out, actually, in the, around the turn of the century, between around 1900 to 1950 or 60, lots of churches had bowling alleys. Lots of churches actually had bowling alleys in their basements, and these were not mega churches. They were kind of parish churches, local neighborhood churches. And the reason that they had those bowling alleys in there was so that the community could connect to the church. 
they were there as bridges to the community so that everybody there, when they went bowling, they just went bowling in the church basement. It was the place where community gatherings happened. And so there for 50 or 60 years, the church was promoting something very specific, which was, we want to come to you. We want to build bridges to the community so that we can gather people so that we can move toward the people around us. But in the 80s, that had actually flipped. And the idea wasn't to build bridges, it was more to build walls. Everything needs to happen within the church walls, and so you never have to interact with your neighbors or your friends or the world out there. What if we built more bridges than walls as a church? What if we cared so deeply about the place God has put us that we prayed fervently for it? That we loved what is lovely and beautiful about our pray, place and we sought really fervently to heal up and, and bind up what is broken about it? You know, Jesus, when he, when he tells us to pray, he tells us, you know, your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He doesn't say pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in heaven as it is in heaven. Or even your will be done just in our hearts as it is in heaven. But your will be done here in our place. We want your kingdom to be manifest not only in our lives, but in our places, in our world, in our city. How are we moving toward those around us? How are we loving the place that God has put us? That's the first kind of part of our equation. But of course, there is a tension at play here too. Because Daniel loves the place, but he doesn't eat the food. He loves the place and moves toward the people, but he is actively at the same time moving away from the worldview. Look how we open up verse 8. We read that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. Daniel decided he wasn't going to eat the food that the, food that the king put in front of him. Why? Well, I mean, there's a couple of possibilities. First, it could be that the food is not kosher, right? So this would be food that's unclean. But actually, as you read on through Daniel, there's indication that he actually does eat meat and drink wine fairly regularly. Second reason, maybe this is food that had been uh, sacrificed to idols. But honestly, in that Babylonian culture, probably the vegetables would have been as well. So we can kind of mark those two big reasons off. That's probably not why Daniel is taking this stand here. Why is he refusing to eat the king's meat, drink the king's wine? I don't know is the real answer. But here's what I do know. Is that Daniel had decided for whatever reason that if you jump in completely to the Babylonian assimilation program, then it is going to eat you alive. If you let it get into you fully, then you are going to eventually get squeezed into its mold. And so Daniel decided, and his friends along with him, that they would be fed by God and not by Nebuchadnezzar. I do think it kind of begs a good question for us of what does it mean for us to eat the king's food in our culture? What is the king's food around us? Well, I think one example, and this is certainly not the only one, but one example I think uh, that is both a particular application point and kind of a good illustration for us is social media. 
Uh, if you have not seen the Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma, then don't. It will terrify you <laughs> because it actually uh, opens up kind of the underbelly of social media in a very frightening way. It's a documentary done actually mostly by ex-executives from places like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest, and they're all actually talking about what goes on behind the scenes, even behind the numbers, behind the math of social media. And there's a few really big, big pieces. The first is that uh, all that they want to do is predictive. So social media is supposed to be predictive. By that, I mean that they actually want to try and predict where we are going to click, the kind of avenues that we're going to go down, the sort of news that we want, the information that we want to see. And so all of these companies actually put on their payrolls multiple psychologists, psychologists whose main job it is is to figure out what do human beings want to click on, where do they want to go kind of when they're surfing the web, and how can we lead them there. There is an entire school uh, a degree program at Stanford based around this, predictive technology. And so the idea is if we can figure out exactly what we think you're like, then we can predict with pretty good certainty where we think you want to go next, what sort of news we think you want to see next, what sort, of, uh, what sort of things that can pop up that are going to make you kind of follow down this path that we'd like to take you. Because the goal actually is to lead people down a very particular path so that they can be grouped together in smaller groups so that you'll be around the people that, you, that think like you and act like you and buy the stuff that you buy. You know, if you're getting your news from, from a social media outlet, uh, you are actually getting a feed of news that's based on what they think you want to read. The algorithm actually does all the math and figures out what news do we think you want to read, and they give you that next headline. So it is no wonder sometimes we pick up the news and we go, Does, is everybody reading this news? Well, the answer is no. Everybody's not reading the same news. You're reading your news. I'm reading my news. Somebody else is reading their news, and we wonder why we're so polarized as a society. It's because we're all being led into these small groups. So it's predictive, first of all. Second of all, it's actually addictive. That, that is not a bug. It is a feature that is actually built in. We, it is programmed to be addictive. You've all felt it. It's why it is so darn hard not to look at your phone when you get a notification. You get that ding, and you're like, oh, uh, something is going on. I have to pick up my phone. I have to look at it. It dinged. It's amazing. But it is truly programmed there, and again, they have you know, scientists working on this stuff that know exactly what kind of dopamine is released in our brains when we hear a notification of a new email or a text or somebody has liked our picture or posted something that we might want to look at. So it's addictive by nature, predictive and addictive. And then thirdly, it, it is monetized. See, the reason why you want to get people all together in one room that all think the same thing and all act the same way is because all those people probably buy the same stuff. And if we can get everybody together that all buys the same stuff, then it's going to be really, really easy to sell you that stuff. And so it's driven, actually, by advertiser support so that we actually can come and buy the things that they think we want to buy. There's a chilling phrase that's actually an old adage that says, you know, if, if you don't know what the product is, you're the product. 
you're using a free service. And if you don't know what it is you're buying, guess what? You're the product that's being purchased. Now, why do I tell you all this? Why am I on this little rant here? Is it because I hate technology or hate social media? No, it's not. Actually, social media has done a lot of really wonderful good for our world as well. We get to connect with people across the world in ways that we never have. We, we, we have the ability to connect with old friends, to keep up with people, to see pictures of, you know, people's kids and cats, you know, anytime we want to. But when we swallow hook, line, and sinker, whatever our culture is selling us, we run the risk, I think, of actually just eating the king's food in ways that can be super damaging. I, I find it fascinating, actually, that the things that Daniel turns away <laughs> are, are fatty foods and alcohol, two addictive things that he actually turns away, right? And it, that, that may be social media for you. It may be just kind of a, a, an unthinking uh, embrace of technology, or maybe it's the, the unthinking embrace just of capitalism, the pure consumption of everything around us. Or maybe it's an unthinking embrace of our culture's sexual ethic. Or maybe it's an unthinking embrace of the way that our culture deals with human beings made in God's image. What is the food that we're eating, friends? Because we, we may not even know that it's there. Remember the movie The Matrix? 1999, Keanu Reeves, The Matrix. Uh, well, the whole premise of The Matrix is that the computers have kind of taken over the world and they've put all the humans to sleep and they've implanted in our minds this, this utopian uh, false reality. And so we think we're living kind of our best life now, right? But, but really, all, all the humans are enslaved to the, to the computers. Maybe not quite as weird as it sounded in 1999. How do you wake up from the matrix, right, if you don't really know you're in the matrix? And why? <laughs> I think that's a helpful question for us to ask. Why do we do these things? Well, first of all, is it's hard. <laughs> you know, that conflict that we're called to, to move toward people and away from their worldview, is conflict. And conflict is hard. It is hard to walk upstream. It's much easier to either just build a boat and get in the stream of culture and go downstream or to stand on the side of the, of the river and never get yourself wet. It is much harder to move toward people and away from their worldview at the same time. So why do we do it? I saw something the other day that was fascinating, the story about uh, what, every, what every sports fan knows is that uh, playing at home is better than playing away. Okay, home field advantage is like, that's the thing everybody knows home field advantage is an advantage. But you may actually be surprised to know why. I didn't. There's been some serious studies, some like scientific studies on why is home field advantage actually an advantage. And what's fascinating is that by and large, it's not because the people on the field play any better. In fact, the things kind of that you can measure, things like free throw percentage, Free throw percentage really pretty much stays the same home or away. So it really doesn't matter that you can put 50 people behind a basket waving pool noodles and signs and yelling at a guy. He's going to shoot just about the same free throw percentage as he does at home when those people aren't there. Pitchers, when they are pitching, you know, in front of a crowd who's booing them, uh, who, who's, who's loud and raucous, it, they pretty much pitch the same speed and the same sort of accuracy. 
So it doesn't really affect the performance of the players. Guess what it affects? The performance of the referees. Now, I, I'm not trying to start, you know, a, 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 a huge thing here, all right? Uh, th this new, um, you know, Oliver Stone movie that's going to come out. But, uh, but really, that's what they found, is that at the end of the game, especially, when it's really on the line, a referee doesn't want to disappoint the crowd. And so referees, just like you and me, like, we don't like to be booed. And the refs don't want to be booed. And so when it really comes down to it, they don't want to make a call that might actually elicit boos from the home field fans. Boy, that kind of hits home for me. Why is it so hard for us to engage the conflict of loving people and moving away from their worldview? It's because we don't like to get booed. <laughs> I don't like to disappoint people. I don't like to have somebody tell me that they don't like me. I don't like to see it in somebody's eyes that they just don't really want to talk to me anymore. I don't like it when somebody looks at me and they kind of think I'm just kind of a weirdo for acting the way that I act. And guys, I get paid for this stuff, so I get it. It's hard. It's hard. So what's our hope? What's the hope that we have in this? Well, here it is. It's that God is at work all the time. In the midst of the conflict, in the midst of us walking upstream, in the midst of trying to love and serve uh, our neighbors and our friends and our city and our world, in the midst of actually trying to move against even the, the things that the culture values so much, God is actually working. Did you notice the repeated phrase? You would have noticed it more if I would have read all of chapter 1. But remember in, in chapter 1, the very first, very first verse, it says, uh, it gives us kind of the political background. It says that, that, um, that Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, was, was overcome and invaded by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and took him into exile. But verse 2 actually gives us the theological reasons. is that God gave Jehoiakim into his hand. And as we open up actually verse, uh, verse 9 here, I believe, in, uh, in the second half of Daniel 1, what do we hear? God gave Daniel favor with the chief of the eunuchs. God gave. God gave. Fast forward then to the last bit and what we hear here in verse 17. For these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and literature and wisdom and understanding. God gave. God gave. God gave over and over and I love, listen to this, what did he give? <laughs> God gave them skill in understanding and wisdom and literature and learning. You know what? Those are all of the same things, the very words that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to use to give to those people he was bringing in. That was Nebuchadnezzar's big assimilation kind of program. This is what we're going to do. We're going to bring these youths in. You know, they're young, they're good looking, they're smart, and we're going to teach them the culture. We're going to give them, you know, understanding. We're going to teach them in literature. We're going to make sure they're wise. And in doing so, we're going to give them all the good things that they want, and then they will be ours, and we'll be able to wipe out their identity and rebuild it in the way that we want to build it. But do you hear what God is saying? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's not going to be the giver of all good gifts. I am. All of the things that he is trying to give them in order to remake their identity, God gives them. God is at work this whole time. And friends, the wonderful truth for us <laughs> is that it does not depend 
on the faithfulness of you or me. It depends on the faithfulness of God. Because God is still at work. And he is still working to renew all things. And so what it depends upon is not how good you are at loving your culture. Or how good you are at standing against its worldview. It does not depend on how good we are at walking upstream. Because the glorious truth of the gospel is that Jesus died and rose again for, uh, you know, referees who don't want to get booed. Is that Jesus died and rose again for people addicted to phone notifications. It's that Jesus died and rose again from people who would rather buy something to soothe their loneliness than do anything else. It's that Jesus has actually done it. Jesus has moved toward his people. He has moved toward us even when we were running away. And instead of being assimilated by sin, he has actually stood against it. He has come to take on our flesh, yet to do so in a way that is actually still, he's kept himself away from our brokenness. It's amazing. And the gospel is the good news that he has done that on our behalf. So the message that we have is not simply just go and be like Daniel. Daniel's a great example for us. But the message that we get to cling to is to celebrate a God who has been more than we could ever be, who will be more than we will ever be, and who has done what we cannot do. That's what we celebrate today. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we live uh, in, in difficulty. It is hard to love people well. It's hard to not drink the wine of our culture and eat its food. It's hard to remain faithful and holy as you have called us to be. But Lord, you have done so much more. You have endured trials that we will never know. You have taken on what we could never take on ourselves. And so, Jesus, we ask that we would turn to you for strength, that you, through the power of your Spirit, would enable us to walk upstream in our culture, would enable us, Lord, to love the place that you have put us, but not to eat its food. Will you do this, Lord, in us today by the power of your Spirit? We pray in your name. Amen.